Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the podcast from P-Town. Hope everybody's having another good week out there. Hope everybody's uh, all ready for Christmas. It's getting, uh, it's going to be honest, in about another three days, three or four days. So hope everybody's all ready for that. Enjoy some time off with your family for the holidays and your relatives and that type of thing. Uh, maybe wherever you're listening from, you're going to have a white Christmas. It doesn't look like we're going to have one here. We're just going to have a cold Christmas. Which, I don't mind the cold weather much, as long as there's some snow with it. But we haven't gotten a whole lot of snow. There's been a bunch of snow up in the mountains, but not much, uh, so much down here. But the mountains, I guess, is where we really need it at. Uh, taking a look at the news. Again, I didn't follow a whole bunch of stories this last week. I did see something today on the news that was kind of interesting. Or kind of, I don't know, common sense, I guess. This, there's a town back in i think it's west virginia or something like that and they decided to defund the police force there by 30 percent which when all this stuff was going on last year they started defunding the police they took the school resource officers away and used that money to for some social activism or racial justice program or something that they were doing and now they're complaining that Oh my gosh, the crime is so high. There was one uh, business owner there that said the gals that work for him are afraid to walk to their cars by themselves at night after work because uh, there's so much crime going on in that town. And it's just like, what do you guys think is going to happen when you start defunding the police and they're not getting any support from the political side? They're not getting any support from the citizens. But who does everybody call? When they're in an emergency, they immediately call the police and then they expect them to be there right away. And I'm probably uh, telling you guys stuff you already know, but it just seems kind of stupid to me that uh, now these people are raising this big old cane that the crime is so bad and whatnot. But again, not everybody in these towns wanted to defund the police. You know, there were a lot of people that were still backing the cops and uh, weren't wanting them to be funded. So. I don't know. It's kind of a sad state of things. Uh, I support all of our law enforcement and first responders. I was a EMT for a while and really enjoyed doing that. And um, I just I have a lot of respect for people who would go out there and put their lives in danger danger for somebody that uh, they don't even know, and they even end up putting their lives in danger for the criminals. You know, when they after they take a criminal down or something, they immediately start rendering first aid to the guy. So. That was another thing. There was a guy up in uh, Hillsboro, I think it was. He tried running over a cop in a stolen car, and then he took off on a, on the run, and the cops ended up chasing him and putting out spike strips, and then they, they did a pit maneuver and ended up uh, making him wreck. And then once he wrecks, he gets out takes off running from the cops and run off into some bushes and whatnot, and they ended up having to send the canine in after him, which the canine took him down pretty quickly which uh, by the way that was one of my favorite episodes or my favorite things to watch when they used to have cops and life pd before everybody went soft was they would show the canines going after these guys and taking them out but uh yeah so there's probably going to be a bunch of stuff come out about that that you know dogs are too inhumane to bite people or some deal like that well if you're not breaking the law and being an idiot you probably aren't going to get bit by the police dog either so anyhow, that's uh, my soapbox for that. Uh, it looks like Trump has something. He has he's planning a conference or something at his Mar-a-Lago 
uh, resort on January 6th, which is the one-year anniversary of the um, the Capitol Hill riot is what they're calling it. So it'll be kind of interesting to see where where uh, what all comes of that. But like I said, I didn't watch a whole lot of the news this week, so that's about all the news that I have to uh, go with. I can't tell you much about the Eagles because I think they're still playing, and we're not in their viewing area, so we don't get the game. We end up having to watch the Seahawks and the Rams, um, which whoop-de-doo. The Seahawks are my dad's favorite team, but I'm not a real big fan of them. I actually went to a game in Seattle when the Seahawks were playing the Philadelphia Eagles, and uh, I wore my Eagles jersey proud all the way through that thing, and uh, ended up coming out alive, so that was a plus. Anyhow, getting into the episode that we're talking about tonight is going to be about Singman Rhee, and this is another one. I'm not really exactly sure how I feel about this guy. Um, He did some good stuff, but I think he also did some bad stuff too, so... Let's take a look at it. Uh, he was born on March 26th of 1875, and he was born in a place called Daegyong, which is a village in Korea. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce the whole name of the province and everything. It was about 18 letters long, and they were all Y's and G's, it seemed like. Uh, he had two brothers that died during infancy, and then he had ended up having two sisters. They were a rural family, but... One thing that they noted is that they could trace their lineage back to the Grand Prince Yang Yong, but that was 16 generations before. And I got to thinking about it, why not go back 17 generations then and trace themselves back to the king? If you're going to go back that far, just trace it all the way back to where there's a king involved. But anyhow, he was two years old, and his family ended up moving to Seoul, and he received a traditional Confucian education. And obviously, in this way of life or religion or whatever, swaying the, or seeing the things came down from the teachings of Confucius is, I guess, how that education went. Uh, all, everybody knows all the like Confucius sayings like, he who stands on toilet is high on pot and different things like that. Or he who farts in church must sit in his own pew. And so that was kind of the Confucius stuff that they learned. But he ended up developing smallpox when he was nine years old, and he ended up being virtually blind for a time until he was cured by an American missionary who was over there. And he ended up enrolling in an American Methodist school and converted to Christianity at the time. And then in 1894, he enrolled in the Pai Chi school, and uh, he was involved in a lot of newspapers there, and he actually worked for the first daily paper in Korea. And while he was there, he also earned money on the side by teaching Korean to the Americans, like the American missionaries and uh, whatnot that were living over there. He ended up getting into anti-Japanese activi- activities after the Sino-Japanese War in 1895. Basically, the area that he was living in got transferred from the Chinese sphere of influence to the Japanese. Um, and it doesn't sound like it sounded like the Japanese treated them as less than and uh, a lower class of people and things like that. He was actually he was also implicated in a plot to assassinate an empress of King Gojon, uh, but a female American physician she ended up helping him to avoid the charges and get out of that deal. And he also helped organize several protests against Japan as well as against the Russian Empire because they're kind of working together at the time. 
then he was actually implica- implicated in a plot to remove King Gojon himself. And he ended up going to... Ooh, this is a big one. Gyeongmucheong Prison in January of 1899 uh, for this little stunt that he pulled. And after he was in prison for about 20 days, he tried to escape, but he ended up getting caught. And then uh, for trying to escape, he ended up receiving life life imprisonment. But while he was in prison, uh, he translated and compiled the entire Sino-Japanese war record. He wrote The Spirit of Independence. He compiled the English-Korean Dictionary. And he wrote the Imperial Newspaper. And he always, he managed to do all this and still uh, find time to get tortured while he was there in prison. But he was released from prison in 1904 when the Russo-Japanese War broke out. And in November of 1904, he, he uh, moved to the United States. When he got here, he showed up like a boss. In August of the next year, he met with the Secretary of State John Hay and with uh, President Theodore Roosevelt. He met them at a peace talk, and he was trying to get them to help uh, preserve independence for Korea, but he was unsuccessful in that venture. He also met with Woodrow Wilson to help uh, people involved in the 105-man incident, but uh, that didn't bring any change either. And basically, that was an assassination attempt that had happened in Korea. Uh, He was talking to Woodrow Wilson about that. Then in 1913, he moved to Honolulu, where he started to publish the Pacific Ocean Magazine. He also started a Christian church there in 1918. Uh, But then in 1919, he was chosen as the Korean representative to the Paris Peace Conference. But they actually, they failed to get permission for him to travel to Paris. So he went back to the mainland USA, and while he was uh, back here in the States, he held the first Korean conference in Philadelphia. And this was basically a group getting together to make plans for future activist opportunities for the independence um, for Korea, Uh, which I think I mentioned it somewhere, but um, this guy, he's kind of like that guy in France, Charles de Gaulle, that we talked about. Everything was about Korea and... uh, you know, you can uh, respect these guys' nationalism that they had, you know. But so my, by March 1st of 1919, he was appointed to, for, uh, to foreign minister in the Noryong provincial government, uh, prime minister for the provincial government of the Republic of Korea, and a position that was basically president of the Hansung provincial gover- provisional government. So <clears throat> he was involved in a lot of things. And then in June, he was acting in capacity of the president of the Republic of Korea. So, uh, you know, he moved pretty quickly once he got back there. And so he notified the prime ministers uh, that were at peace with the con- or that were at the peace conference of Korea's independence. Um, we're not sure if this was only in his mind or if everybody thought they were independent at the time. But then he was notified that he was selected as acting president for the provisional government in Shanghai. So in December of 1920 till May 1921, he moved to Shanghai. But this didn't ended up lasting too long because he failed to fulfill the duties of the acting president, mainly from controversies inside the provisional government. So there was, again, there was a lot of things going on for him. So he ended up leaving Shanghai and returned to the U.S. for the Washington Naval Conference and while he was here, he try, he was trying to get the Korean independence issue on the agenda, but he was unsuccessful in that attempt as well. 
and then in September of 1922, he moved back to Hawaii to focus on publication, education, and religion. So it seems like he was kind of stepping away from all that stuff for a little bit. But it seems all the while he was still president of the provisional government because he was impeached in 1925 over a misuse of power. It, I don't know how you can be president of the provisional government when you don't even live there. But he, he continued to claim the title of president, and he continued his independence cause. And like I would said, this kind of almost seems like um, Charles de Gaulle of France, uh, how he kind of worked everything. And then we fast forward to 1933, where he attended the League of Nations, and he again brought up the Korean independence issue. And again, it didn't really go anywhere. And so after that, he kind of just seemed to live his life for a few years. But then in 1939, he and his wife moved from Hawaii to D.C., and here he wrote the book Japan Inside Out, and he uh, published it in the summer of 1941, and it obviously didn't paint the Japanese in a real um, high light. So shortly after that, though, the attack on Pearl Harbor came, and he used this as an opportunity to talk with President Roosevelt about the existence of the provisional government of Korea. And part of his plan was working on anti-Japanese strategies with the United States. So once Japan surrendered in 1945, Rhee traveled to Tokyo on a U.S. military aircraft. And by October of 1945, he was issued a passport to return to Korea. And even though the State Department didn't want him to get one, he was still able to get it and uh, travel back there. And it actually appears he was helped out by an OSS agent, which was basically, they were the precursor to the CIA before they, um, before it transferred over, I guess. So, uh, leaving Tokyo, he was flown to Seoul on General MacArthur's private airplane, actually. Him and MacArthur had gotten to know each other, and MacArthur flew him on his private plane um, from Tokyo to Seoul. And once he returned to Korea, he assumed the post of President of the Independence Promotion Central Committee, Chairman of the Korean People's Representative Democratic Legislature, and President of the Headquarters for Unification. And I'm not sure why they need such long names for everything in Korea. They could have shortened those down uh, quite a bit. But immediately, once he got back, it seemed like he was kind of cutting people off. He was opposed to any foreign intervention. He was anti-communist, so he didn't like the Soviets. And he opposed the Soviet and U.S. idea to basically create a trusteeship for Korea. And he uh, refused to join the U.S.-Soviet Cooperation Committee. So the independence in Korea, it had always been a source of turmoil, like I'd said. And it seems... Uh, the different factions within the country hated each other about as much as they hated the Japanese. So since Rhee had spent uh, so much time abroad and he wasn't as involved in the infighting that was going on, they thought that he may be a suitable leader to help develop a compromise uh, between the sides. And the U.S., they supported this, as, or we supported it as well, since he already spoke English and we had worked with him in the past. But they also knew that he was kind of hard to work with. He was kind of prickly and uncompromising. But in the end, the good outweighed the bad. And I think, you know, like uh, we've been saying, everything that he was doing was focusing on the betterment of Korea, which I guess that's probably who you want to lead your country. So although he refused to join the U.S.-Soviet Cooperation Committee, it seems we did it anyhow and made Korea a trustee. So we just, uh, it wasn't so much of a cooperation committee as it was, this is what we're going to do. And by 1946, he wanted Korea to be established as an independent entity. To do this, he had a plan in mind, 
and he moved back to the U.S. from December of 1946 to April of 1947 to lobby again for it. And by November of 1947, the U.N. recognized Korea's independence. So he finally got his voice heard, and they recognized their independence. They created the United Nations Temporary Commission on Korea, but um, basically all this was, it was just to oversee the elections that were going to be held in South Korea in 1948. So in 1948, they, did, they had the South Korean Constitutional Assembly election, and Ri was selected to serve in this, and he was elected to be Speaker of the Assembly. And in here, he created a policy that the President of South Korea had to be elected by the National Assembly. So on July 17th of 1948, the Constitution of the Republic of Korea was adopted, and on July 20th, Ri was elected President with a 92.3% vote, which is very very good evidently or obviously then on august 15th the republic of korea was formally established in south korea so quickly after he was elected he enacted laws that curtailed political dissent Uh, this caused quite a bit of controversy with his leftist opponents which ended up get many of them arrested and in some cases it got him killed and re soon became known as a dictator He would allow the police to detain and torture suspected communists, and his government oversaw many massacres that were usually done by the police. So he was out against the—he was kind of like McCarthy before McCarthy was McCarthy. By 1950, he had about 30,000 communists in jails and another 300,000 in re-education camps. And when the North invaded South Korea, almost all these prisoners ended up being killed. And this was actually, it was actually known as the Bodo League Massacre, where they went through and killed all these suspected communists, probably so they didn't have to fight those guys as well as fighting the actual army that was coming in. And at this point, it kind of gets us up to the time of the Korean War. Uh, Both sides were wanting control of the area, but the U.S. wouldn't give the South heavy weapons because we only wanted to help them to defend the area. The North Koreans, though, they were getting heavy, heavily supplied by the Soviets, and on June 25th of 1950, the North launched a full-scale uh, invasion on the South. And the troops that the South had along the 38th parallel were overtaken in a couple of hours, and it was apparent that the North would end up getting control of Seoul. And due to this, reissued a statement that all of his cabinet, including himself, would protect the government and that all citizens should stay in their workplaces. Funny thing is, when he said this, he had already fled fled the city. And by June 28th, the North had occupied Seoul. So Ri had fled and set up a temporary government in Busan. And after the Battle of Incheon in September, the UN forces had worked over the North Koreans pretty good by that point. So we were starting to get some ground back. They had liberated South Korea and they had overrun much of North Korea by the time. So Ri, he was wanting a full surrender, but then China ended up entering the war and the UN forces were forced to retreat at that time. And this kind of seemed to infuriate him. At this point, uh, he ordered the December massacres of 1950. And here they end up killing thousands of people in and around Seoul. I think they, uh, <clears throat> they were all people that they were either suspected or actively helping out the Chinese and the North Koreans. He also he wanted the U.S. to go on a full on, uh, to go full on against China, even if it caused a nuclear war with the Soviets. So he didn't want our help when he first became president. But then once his uh, tails to the fire, now he's wanting the U.S. to engage in a full scale war against some pretty uh, heavily armed countries. 
But finally, in 1953, the U.S. entered uh, armistice negotiations, which Rhee was strongly against. He told the U.S. that if they signed an armistice agreement, then he wanted all the U.S. troops to pull out of his country. He said he would rather fight on his own rather than negotiate a ceasefire. But finally, the armistice had ended up being signed on July 27th of 1953, and it was signed by pretty much all parties except for Rhee. He refused to sign it. It had also come out that during the war, his government was corrupt from top to bottom. Surprise, surprise. It was noted that his monthly salary came out to about $37.50 per month, yet he lived a uh, pretty good lifestyle. And it was found at, uh, that the U.S. aid that was getting sent to the country was being stolen and not used for its intended purposes. And his leaders and his armies, they would uh, take the soldiers' paychecks, the stuff that was supposed to go to the guys who were out there fighting. They'd end up uh, just taking them and telling them that they weren't getting paid that month or something. And uh, he also started, it was called the National Defense Corps. And it was a parliamentary or a paramilitary organization to work on internal security duties. Um, they were probably, you know, out there popping caps and colonies. But a lot of them ended up dying uh, throughout the first winter of this because the general that was uh, over them, he ended up taking the money that was supposed to be used on heat for their barracks and for their food and for their clothing and whatnot, and he ended up taking, for, uh, taking all that for himself. Uh, for his actions, uh, him and five others were actually publicly shot in 1951. So at least they kind of did the right thing there. But anyhow, now he was up for re-election again. Uh, he knew that the people were against him, and he figured that the National Assembly wasn't going to re-elect him. So he wanted to make an amendment to the Constitution. Remember the one that he wrote that said that they had to be voted in by the National uh, Assembly? Uh, he wanted the Constitution to be rewritten that he could be re-elected by popular vote. And the Assembly denied this. So he ordered mass arrests of his opposition, and then he went ahead and passed the amendment anyhow, without the National Assembly even voting on it. And guess what happened then? He ended up getting reelected. They also had term limits written into the Constitution. He had this change so that the incumbent could rerun for an unlimited amount of terms. So in March of 1960, he ended up winning his fourth term as president. Uh, he wanted his protege, his protege to be elected as his vice president. Because at this time, it was a separate uh, office in Korea. They, um, I think they held, like, separate duties, basically, more so than, like, what a traditional vice pre or a president and vice president have. But Ree's buddy, he ended up <clears throat> beating out the guy that he was running against. And it was a pretty wide margin. And people started saying that the election had been rigged. And so people started protesting again. And after the police shot some people at one of the protests, Re ended up resigning on April 26th. But interestingly enough, on April 28th, the CIA again, they covertly flew into DC-4 and got Re out of the country. Because uh, the people, they'd kind of surrounded the place and they were wanting to kill him. There were protesters that, uh, you know, they were converging on the house that he lived in. But the CIA... Uh, ended up sneaking in there and getting him and his wife, who's from Austria, they end up getting them and their adopted son out of the country. And his wife, she was actually, she was so thankful for this. She went to the cockpit of the plane when they were flying out and she offered the, the pilot a diamond ring as thanks for getting them out of there. But the pilot, he refused to take it. 
and the family, they end up living in Honolulu after that. Um, and he just kind of lived out the rest of his days in Honolulu. There wasn't a whole lot after that. Um, in his personal life, he was married twice. His first marriage was in 1990, but it ended in 1910, um, pretty shortly after their son died. And then a second marriage took place in 1934, and they stayed married until his death. <clears throat> and they'd adopted three sons. And I'm not sure, because like his first marriage uh, ended after his son had died. Uh, and then they, he never went on to have any actual uh, biological children after that. And so I don't know if his first son dying was due to like maybe some birth defect that he carried or something. But like I said, they, it didn't look like he ever had any biological children they were all adopted kids but re he finally died of a stroke on july 19th of 1965 and his body was taken back and he was buried in the national cemetery in uh in seoul south korea and that's pretty much all i have on him um i know this was another one where it seemed like i was just kind of throwing out a lot of dates and bouncing around but he's another guy that um there was quite a bit about out there on him and i just tried to kind of pick out some of the highlights to hopefully maybe help out some kid in a test that they're taking on singman re or something like that i don't know but um hope you guys are enjoying the podcast we are just over a year old i think um of the podcast so hope you guys have enjoyed it and uh stuck with me it's um hopefully it's getting a little bit better i've been working with another person a little bit on the side to hopefully try to come up with some different um, formats and ideas, hopefully um, talking to him about possibly coming on and co-hosting some episodes and things like that with me. So that'd be kind of fun. Both of us, uh, we kind of like to argue or banter back and forth a little bit. So we're trying to find some subjects that maybe one of us agrees with and the other one doesn't and just sit down and have a friendly discussion about it or something like that. So, uh, Hopefully that'll start taking some shape here before too long. Uh, probably be after the holidays sometime when things uh, slow down a little bit. But go out there and uh, follow me on the uh, Facebook page at Podcast from P-Town. Or you can follow me on Instagram at P-Town Podcast. Or you can send an email at ptownpodcast74 at gmail.com. That's it for this one. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks a lot. <laughs>